The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Hey everyone. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales. A podcast about forensic pathology related topics. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents who are going into forensic pathology. And this is round two of two for today, so you're welcome. Yeah. Slash apologies if we're a little bit more loopy than normal. Because it's weird how tiring recording a podcast is. It shouldn't be because it's fun, but it's weird. Yeah. So we heard that some people might want to be forensic pathologists when they grow up. We also hope to be forensic pathologists when we grow up. We're close to the grown-up stage, but we're kind of in that like awkward teenage years where we're, you know, learning to stretch our legs and getting more confident, but not quite there yet. So yeah. And we realized we talked a lot about how to become a forensic pathologist in other countries, but we've never really gone into that much detail about how to do so in the United States. Yeah. So we thought it would be good to kind of take a step back and go through that. Yeah. And so we're gonna walk through from high school through the end of fellowship even though we haven't done fellowship yet, and then we're definitely not going to talk about what it takes to be an attending because we're definitely not there yet. But we're going to walk you through as much of it as we feel comfortable walking <laughs> you through. So we're going to go back a couple decades to high school. Decades? Has it been that long? Been a decade and a bit. Oh my gosh. Wait, I was 17 when I graduated high school. <sighs> <laughs> okay. And I turned 31 the other day. Yeah. <laughs> so really the long and short of what you need to know from high school is be a good kid, Get decent grades, get into a good college. The better college you get into, the easier it's going to be to get into a decent med school as long as you can keep up your grades. But, you know, plenty of people get into great med schools that, you know, aren't going to an Ivy League school. So don't feel like you have to go to an Ivy by any means to get into a medical school. Definitely prepare yourself with more sciencey classes if you can't, if you know at this point that's what you want to get into. Plenty of people don't necessarily know when they're in high school what they want to be, and that's fine. But if you have an inkling that you might want to become this, taking more math, bio, and science classes may help prepare you. And a lot of high schools offer an anatomy class. Mine did, and I didn't take it. <laughs> but I think that's because I was that kid that wanted to take more APs, and the anatomy class wasn't an AP. So I would have not been able to take all the APs if I took the anatomy class. That so. is exactly the same boat I was in. <laughs> Nerd school. Yeah. <laughs> So long story short, use high school to set you up well, but if you don't do perfectly in high school, by no means is that going to keep you from becoming a forensic pathologist when you grow up. Yeah. And don't spend all of your time dedicated to science and math courses. Like, oh yeah. Get sure. out there and do fun things as well. Also like so many colleges nowadays don't take people that only do school. You need something else. So do extracurriculars. Be a human. Like one of the great things that I love about almost every forensic pathologist that I know is that they're really cool humans outside of being the cool doctors that they are. Yeah. So, you know, keep your sanity and be a human and do fun things. Do sports. Do whatever makes you happy. Because sanity is important. So once you graduate high school and you get into the college of your choice or whatever. <laughs> the college you got into. The college you got into. You can pretty much major in anything you want as yep. long as you take uh, some specified required science courses. But there are quote unquote pre med degrees. For example, yeah. when I was at UCLA, I was a physiological science major. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I just took all of the physio and anatomy okay. courses. Yeah, I was a bio major. Well, plenty of people did bio and also went to get their PhDs in bio. So it was kind of. Yeah. 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 But also, if you don't manage to take all these prereqs, they do have some good post-bac programs. So yes. some post-baccalaureate programs that you can fill in the gaps if you don't know until you're done with college that that's what you want to do. Exactly. Yeah. The main thing in college is to have a good GPA. Yeah. And then do things outside of school. So have some research experience, maybe some teaching experience, um, some sort of experiences in medicine that show you know what you're going into and that you're truly interested. So do something like being a medical scribe or shadow or research in the medical field. Like I did some anesthesiology research. 
Yeah. And my experience in the medical field was interning at the San Joaquin County Coroner's oh, Office with okay. Dr. Romalu. Like, they I, counted that. Yeah. <laughs> I was an EMT. I spent way too long talking to patients. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I didn't think I would talk about high school is, so when you talked about keeping your GPA high, yeah. one of the reasons that, so I went to MIT, which is a good school, but unlike Harvard, where the hardest thing is getting in, it's very hard to maintain a good GPA at MIT. So my mm. grades weren't the highest. But at high school, we had a lot of what they called AP UConn classes. So I'm from Connecticut. Our AP courses were cross-credited at UConn. So a lot of the courses that I took in high school, I actually got college credit for. Yeah. And so when I filled out my application for medical school that we're going to talk about in a second, I was able to count those as college classes. So all of these A's that I got in high school counted mm-hmm. towards my science GPA and brought up my grade. Nice, So nice, again, nice. not everybody knows that's what they want to go into, but if you can do that, anything to help bolster your grades... Take advantage of it. Yep. Yeah. And then also get involved in extracurricular activities. Yes. Yes. So for Please example. Please be a human. Yeah. Be a human. <laughs> like in college is when I started doing Muay Thai. Mm, okay. Yeah. That's why I started playing rugby. Yeah. Oh, it's when we both started assaulting other humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting way to put it. <laughs> well, I guess I did Taekwondo before that. So I was doing it from You were from when I was humans six. before <laughs> circa whatever year that was. <laughs> 1996. <laughs> yeah. So you do all of that in college, and then to get into medical school, it's kind of a somewhat intense process. So you take the MCAT, the Medical yes. College Application Test. I took it twice. I took it once? Twice. I think I took it once. I definitely had to take it twice. My, yeah. It wasn't horrible, but it was not, wasn't as good as I needed it to be. Yeah. I could have taken mine twice. But I was fine. No, that's fair. I got into yeah. UCSF. Yeah, yeah. It was fine. <laughs> you're, you're good. You're golden. Um, so, yeah. So the MCAT is like another big thing that they take into consideration on your application. Although nowadays medical schools are trying for a more holistic process. Yes. So some of those other things that make you more of a human are weighted a little bit more heavily. So your extracurriculars and things like that. One of the things that I found cool about my med school, so I went to school in Vermont, was that I think there were only, there were like a hundred-ish of us in my class. And I want to say like maybe 10 went straight from undergrad to med school. Oh, yeah. So that means the vast majority of people did something else in the meantime. Yes. So it gives you time to be a human. There yep. were people that did computer science. There were people that were on Wall Street. There were people that did research for a couple of years. You know, you we, we had people that were in fashion for a couple of years. Like it was a really That's cool awesome. breadth of humans that made it a much more sane class to be in. And you could... Not all of them, but some of them you can tell if they were straight from undergrad. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people that aren't in the medical field have this idea that people go high school, college, med school all in a row, yep. which I did, but is actually super rare. Like yeah. you mentioned, only 10 people in your class. Yeah, ours I, was around 10%. Yeah, I think there were only like four people in my class yeah. that went straight through. It's awesome if you can do that, like because the more time off, the more time you have to accumulate debt. Yay. <laughs> Um, but the other thing that I wanted to mention here is, again, I don't know how realistic this would be nowadays since, as Nicole said, the application is much more holistic now, but MIT had this Excel spreadsheet where you put in your GPA, you put in your MCAT scores and something else, and it pretty much gave you a score. And then you could use that to be like, at what, what medical schools could you apply to that you realistically might get into? Oh. So, you know, for me, it was like, you know, the Harvards, there was no point in me even applying to. But, you know, this is the level of school that you realistically could get into. So this is where you should apply. Yeah. These are your reach schools. These are your quote unquote safe schools. And these are like your, you really should get in these unless like you forget what English is on your application. Like, so it was, it was interesting to see that and then to see where you fall on that. Yeah, pretty much if you go into college knowing that you're aiming for med school, you can, like, set yourself up well early on with, like, an individual counselor getting into organizations that will help give you resources for getting into med school. I did, like, tutoring through um, one of the programs on campus, which really helped me in those big science classes where you're, like, you know... From going from a high school class of X amount of people to 300 people and not getting that individualized attention, it's, you know, pretty challenging. Or with a lot of people that end up going into med school, for them, high school, you don't really have to try to do well. Yeah. And then you get into college and you actually have to work for grades now and your brain just takes a while to transition. Yeah. And I know that for a lot of my friends in college, it was 
really hard to get into med school because your GPA, like if you majored in MECI and MIT. MECI? Mechanical engineering. Okay. Sorry. If your GPA was, you know, a B average, that's amazing in the MECI world from MIT. But if a med school saw a B average, they'd be like, are you even trying? And they would not even think, look twice at you. But it's, it's something that's hard to get over when you're at a school like MIT where it's yes. really, really hard to get an A. But, you know, if you're at another school, it might be a little bit easier. So, and they do, like a lot of med schools do not take that into account, which is the issue. Yes. Although I think with the holistic review process, more and more of them are trying to... I hope so. I yeah. still forget sometimes that it was a while ago. Yeah. Like, we started... I started med school in 2013. Yeah, I started in 2012. Yeah, so... Good stuff. We're old. Yep. Yeah, so uh, after you take the MCAT, the actual process of applying to medical school, in general, there's this primary application. The two big ones are something called the AMCAS, and then Texas has their own system. There are other primary application systems, but those are the two main ones. And so you put in like your background, your coursework, all of your extracurriculars, letters of rec, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you might get secondary applications from individual schools, but essentially the application is on a rolling basis. So the earlier you submit, the earlier schools start looking at you and essentially the less competition you have early on. Yes. So you try to get your application in as soon as the AMCAS opens. The other issue that I had with this was essentially you sending your primary, and most schools will automatically send you a secondary, yeah. even if they won't look at you twice. But the primary costs money and the secondary costs money. Yes. So in the end, a lot of this ends up costing a lot of money for, you know, they send that secondary just so they can get more money, but they might already have essentially excluded you. It's kind of, yes. Yeah, I looked it up because I wasn't sure how much it costs nowadays. And the 2021 AMCAS processing fee was $170. That's just for one medical school designation. And then each school that you add on is $41. It seems like that was, I think I feel like I remember secondaries being like a couple hundred bucks. Well, that is just for your primary adding on 41 each. And so secondaries, yeah, that's a different cost. And I think it's school-based. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, medical school is very hard to get into. Yes. The acceptance rate is 40%. So each year, over half of all applicants do not end up being accepted. And spending so much money on the application process. Yes. Which then I always wonder, why is it still so expensive to attend medical school if you're getting all this money in applications? Why in is education ways? in the United States expensive in general? Why do you know we, we should pay for public education? I'm just going to say something. I'm going to stop myself. What? Because, no, we're so gonna stop, I'm going to stop myself. <laughs> so... You've gotten into med school. Congratulations. Let's do you have more to say? Oh, just so after all of that, then the schools will interview you and then they accept you also on a rolling basis. Yes. So you might get accepted somewhere and, you know, tentatively pay them to hold your place and then you get accepted into the school of your dreams and then you drop them, but you, you know, yeah, more money. And then like you're on a wait list and then it starts this whole ball of rolling like well, this person dropped out of that program because they got into their dream school. So a spot was open and then somebody took that spot and then it like kind of cycles down. So like people can find out that they get into med school like a couple days before it starts. Yes. And they have to like get up and move quickly. Like I remember I didn't find out until later in the process. I want to say like May, June. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, well, I need to get ready to move now. I was already thinking about applying again for the next year Oh wow! when I finally got in and yeah. I was just like, all right, great, let's go. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it's crazy. Um, so you've gotten into med school. Congratulations. Woo! But now you still know you want to be a forensic pathologist because it's obviously the coolest job ever. Yes. And why would you ever do anything else? Yeah. So what in med school are you going to see that helps you for forensic pathology? One, first off, in order to know how people die, you need to know how people live. So in theory, <laughs> everything's important. So, you know, if you're going to take that, you know, 100-mile view of it, (laughs) you need to know how somebody lives to know how somebody dies. So it is important to know, quote-unquote, all of medicine for that. But specific to pathology and forensic pathology, one of the first things that you do is anatomy class. So every school does this differently. I know Nicole and I have very different experiences, and we're going to talk about them kind of briefly But ours, we had this two-week, and again, I think the program is even different now than when I was there. We had this two-week, like, ethics, bioethics course, intro to being a good person and a good doctor. 
And then we had this three month course called Human Structure and Function, where for three months you are very slowly working your way through dissecting a body. And as you're doing that, you're doing all of normal physiology along with it. So I'll kind of go through mine, my anatomy, the anatomy part of it. I won't go into the rest of it just yet. And then Nicole will go through her anatomy experience. So we had, like I said, about 100 people in the class. And we had um, six people to a body. So there were, you were split into two sets among these six people. So you and two other people were dissecting together. And then the other three you kind of traded off with. So one day you would dissect. And then the next day you would come in early and teach the other group what you dissected. And then they would take over and do their dissection for the rest of the day and then vice versa. So you either did it or you were taught it, but you were still responsible for all of the material. And the test, oh, sorry. And they also had prosections for a lot of things. So a lot of the very difficult Mm. and delicate structures, they had kind of quote unquote professionally dissected. They're called prosections to see various cool things. Like Vermont has this one like full nervous system that they dissected out of like everything and it's this really cool like filamentous thing of like all of the nerves like in the body works yeah except this was done in like the 60s and it's still there it's super cool um and then for us you know the question is what do you need to know you need to know all the muscles all the nerves all the bones all the vessels all of the big structures what you know, what nerve innervates them, what vessel supplies the blood to the muscles, to the organs, all of that. And then when they ask you questions about these, I don't know if yours was the same way, but we just had like a bunch of bodies that were laid out and they would tie strings around something. And you would, essentially you had a couple, you had like a minute or two at each and then you would rotate. Yeah. And like they would ring a bell or something. I can't remember That is exactly did. how we did our anatomy tests. Yeah. And so like there was a little like string tied around this and it's like, but it's, it's never like, what is this nerve? It's like, what muscles does this nerve innervate? Yep. And it's like a three-step question. So I actually looked this up because I took a picture. One of my crowning moments of medical school was I had written as an answer to one of my questions, upper trunk. And I had a big red X next to it. And in red pen written next to them was read question, period, wasn't ID, period, also not upper trunk. so not only did i have the wrong structure but i didn't answer the question that they were asking harsh and it was it's just that's very i feel like anatomy when they're just like "Mm, yeah yep for those tests they would always use whichever body the team had done the best dissection on yes exactly yeah yeah yeah. and be like oh i recognize this one we did this one so like i don't know about you but like we were always when you studied you went around to all the different bodies and you studied all the bodies because you knew that you were going to have to be able to identify anything on anybody yeah 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 and not just your own the only there was one question i remember being an id only question for one of those and it was a patella they just had the patella out and they were like what bone is this and it's just so unusual to see a yeah. patella out there by itself. Did I was like, get it? I have no freaking clue. Yeah. I don't know if anybody got it, but I was just like, this doesn't look like a bone. <laughs> Did you take a dog toy? Yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> patella is your, your knee bone. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything else with your anatomy that you want to mention? I guess my anatomy was pretty similar, except for we were split into groups of six and all six of us were at the table at once. Oh, wow. That's the, it was just a lot of people for us. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know if this is not a good reasoning, but you know, they knew a lot of people didn't necessarily want to do the dissection. So it was basically just whoever in your group wanted to do the dissection. So I ended up doing a lot of it because that's why we had three people. Cause out of the three people, somebody wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. But they also knew that if it was, like, if you split into smaller groups, at least, like, a couple people were, more people were doing the dissection because it needed to get done. Yeah, that's true. And I just remember some of the bisection stuff, like, I, it was me and two guys. So you can imagine the anatomy that they wouldn't <laughs> touch that I had to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they didn't have all 150 of us in the anatomy lab at once. They would oh, it would be like okay. a morning group would be in there, oh, but it would okay. be you were all together with your group in the morning, and then the the afternoon group would come in gotcha. afterwards. And I guess that's one thing that they did to make it more streamlined for the teachers. Yeah, is that you know everybody was doing the same dissection on the same day. Mm, that would make sense because you had half the people, so like the anatomy profs would only have to be in there from like eight to noon, which is when you were doing the lecture and the dissection. And then, you know, later there was a time that they would be there in the afternoon for if you wanted to study and ask questions. But, you know, they were dedicated to be there then. Yeah, yeah. I remember it was a couple, like, it was like the two years after me, I think, they had fixed the bodies incorrectly. Oh, no. And so the students weren't able to actually do any dissection on their own. At first they tried to give them, like, extra PPE, but, like, yeah. it was still seeping <gasps> through the PPE. Oh. And one of the anatomy professors, like, is never allowed to dissect again because she got such a high exposure <gasps> to the embalming fluid. Because, like, they put, like, the wrong percentage formalin in these bodies or something. Oh, wow. So all these people who donated their bodies, um, like, it couldn't, essentially couldn't be used. Yeah. Which is really sad. There's also usually a donation ceremony, which we talked about before. Did or did we, we leave not? that in? We might have not. I don't remember. Essentially, like, you have this ceremony at the end of anatomy where you think your decedent for what they helped you teach, what they helped teach you. Yeah. It was a very, very nice thing. Yeah, a lot of people volunteered to do things. Like yeah. one of the guys in my class, he was a really good pianist. So Aww. he played um, a song and then some people read poems. It was really beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah, but just a nice way to thank the donors and say goodbye because you do spend a lot of time with them. You do. People name them. You get to know them on a very intimate level. You also le- learn other people's bodies very well. So you're like, oh, yeah, that was Rosie. Because yes. like, we had one that was particularly red. Oh. That everybody, she was Rosie. Yeah. Other pathology that you get in medical school, I think that in basic sciences and like the kind of intro, pathologists take a really key role in teaching you things. So normal anatomy, you know, cardiac pathology can be taught by the internal medicine cardiologists. But when you get into some dysfunction, not necessarily like electrical dysfunction, but, you know, an enlarged heart, in order to physically see the organ, that's where pathologists come in really helpful. So I don't know about you guys, but we had a lot of mini, like, pathology labs. Yes. Where one of the big ones I remember is, like, liver and colon, where they had, like, a fatty liver, which is, like, early stage of um, alcohol disease, and they had a cirrhotic liver, which is, like, end-stage alcohol disease. Yeah. And you could physically hold them. Like, they gave you gloves, and they were fixed, but, like, you could hold them, you can feel them, you can be like, oh, this is what happens. And they did that for essentially any organ that would have gross findings for us. So as we went through each organ, so, like, we did normal first, and then we went through abnormal and everything. So yeah. every abnormal thing we went through, we had a pathology lab on what does the abnormal look like for that organ? And then histology, so microscopic stuff. We learned normal histology along with our normal anatomy. Yep. So we had both virtual and then for the test, they just printed out um, <laughs> histology pictures and like pointed there and like, what's that? Oh, <laughs> like, wow. what structure are you in? And that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because like, we, again, we would rotate. So it's easy to have just like, a bunch of pictures of things on a table and just like step through people in that. Um, Rather than having to readjust the microscope after everybody goes through. Yes, exactly. Don't touch it. <laughs> now that sounds like a thing a gunner would do, just purposefully move the slide to Which the wrong Which is probably arrow. why they didn't do that. Because <laughs> they, yeah, we definitely had a few. Um, and then pathology just kind of fits in with a lot of abnormal. So when we did infectious disease, microbiology would fit in in our microbiology person would come and talk about various things from micro. When we talked about blood cancer, we saw some different histology and we're like what blood cancers look like under the microscope, you know, stuff like that. So they kind of step through that and a lot of small group sessions throughout were either run by pathologists or pathology residents, which also happens at UCSF. Yes. So, And then for us in like intro stuff before clinicals, neuro had its own thing. So we didn't learn about normal neuroanatomy until we did neuro, which was like at the end of our first year. So we didn't like, we didn't touch brains in the first three months. It wasn't until like later. And we didn't actually do the dissections on our own. Yeah. They were like all pre-cut. Yes. Because those are kind of more special and they didn't want us to mess them up, which is understandable. And then in your third 
ish year of medical school. I'm going to say third ish because every program does it differently. We started at two and a half years in. A lot of programs are moving up their clinicals and starting a little bit earlier. But there's kind of these seven main categories of things you have to rotate through, and pathology is not one of them. (laughs) So you do not, you can, like if you're on surgery and they get a frozen, you can go down with that like immediate intraoperative diagnosis and go down to pathology and watch them freeze it and look at the look under the microscope with them, but you're not doing a dedicated pathology rotation until your fourth year when you can do an elective in pathology. In Vermont, anyway, we had clinical pathology months, anatomic pathology months, and a forensic pathology months. So in my fourth year, I did three months, one in each clinical, anatomic, and forensic pathology. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time getting to know. um, Hi, can I help you? Just give me a look getting to know the Vermont pathologists um, and what they did, what they liked, what I enjoyed about it. And I could spend a whole month in forensics just, like, helping out with autopsies, which is awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, Yeah, forensics was not an option at UCSF. I know Dr. Judy Melanek over at the Alameda County Sheriff Coroner's Office was trying to get an elective Mm -hmm. started with UCSF. I don't know if she succeeded, but I wouldn't... If they still have it the way that they did when I was a medical student, there was no way you could do that much pathology because um, we have tiers assigned to different electives. Okay. And you only get so much time of tier two coursework. Oh, okay. And pathology is considered tier two because you don't have direct patient interaction. Interesting. The way that ours worked is you just had like so many requirements you needed to fill. So you need to do internal medicine. Yeah. You needed to do surgery. You needed to do, I can't remember them all now, but like as long as you hit all the things you needed to hit, you can fill the rest of the time with what you want. You can do research. You can do a ways. You yeah. can do whatever you wanted to. That's awesome. But you just had to hit those requirements. Yeah, no, we had to do at least one, we called it a sub-internship. Mm-hmm. I think you called it an acting internship. Acting internship. Yes. AIs, but nobody else in the country calls them that. Yeah. So we had to do it in internal medicine. Unless yep. you were applying into family medicine, you could do it in that. Or if you're going into surgery, you could do it in that. Oh, okay. Um, and then you had to do one more of those. Okay. And then you had to do a couple of the like tier 1Bs, because those were considered tier 1As. Okay. And then that was a certain amount of time. And so that didn't leave you a lot of time for tier twos. Uh, okay. Yeah, we had to do four weeks of medicine. Yeah. Sub eyes. Yes. But I did mine in cardiology, which was awesome because that counted as medicine. Nice. That was so much fun. And then my other one was in the NICU. Okay. Which was fun. So it could be in anything you wanted. I did it in NICU. I also spent some time in surgery yeah. because... I really love the breast surgeon that is in Vermont, and I get to spend a lot of time with her, which is just fun. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure I did other clinical stuff, but you know, I knew I wasn't going to be a clinician, right. so there yeah. was no. I knew that also, but they still made me do yeah. a lot of clinical stuff. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Luckily for us in residency, they've dropped the uh, clinical intern year, so. That's true. Yes. That was like such a long time ago, though. Yes. But, you know, in researching forensic pathology around the globe, they still have it in some places. Like in Canada, right? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Um, The other thing that really, if you want to go into pathology, because obviously to be a forensic pathologist, you have to be a pathologist first. You should do some kind of research in pathology. Most programs are going to be looking for something. It probably doesn't need to be that intense. But you need to show that you're interested in expanding your knowledge beyond just the practical. So I did some research in blood banking stuff. I did like updating the um, standard number of blood products needed in orthopedic procedures, which was like a good summer research thing that I was able to do. I got to know one of the forefront people in blood banking who a lot of our attendings has his book (laughs) in their office. And it's just nice to know some people. So, like, I got to go to a blood banking conference out in Anaheim when I was in medical school and present my poster. And we also did other various research stuff because most med schools make sure you're doing something yep. on the side. So, like, our group project ended up being associated with the Red Cross and also blood banking. So nice. I presented two posters, quote, unquote. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so usually you're going to want to do some kind of research as you're going through medical school, whether that's a summer, like for us. Our first summer after, you know, your first year of med school, we had a three months of doing something. I think it was three months. Maybe it was three months. That sounds like a long time. We had some period of time that I just spent time doing research. I got like a fellowship, quote unquote fellowship. I got money. I did the same thing. To stay in Vermont. Yeah. Which Vermont is gorgeous in the summer. 
and I did like a handful of hours a day doing blood banking research, learning a lot about blood banking, but also just enjoying Vermont summer. And it, like I did learn a lot about blood banking too, which was really cool. And I got to present to ortho at the end of that month. And then applying to residencies is the worst. <laughs> yeah. It's the standard thing called ERAS, where you essentially, it's a, it's the definition of a common application. There is one system for every residency around the country. You submit everything. And this is your grades. This is your rec letters. This is, there's a equivalent of a dean's letter. It's called the MPSE. A bunch of things that this requires and they all go into this kind of black box. You get your rec letters. You apply to as many schools as you think you need to. They'll offer you interviews. And this is really dependent on the specialty that you're going into. How quote-unquote strong of a candidate you need to be. Yeah. You need a much higher grade on your board exams, which I guess we didn't really mention, but you have to take more tests throughout med school, surprise, that are standardized across all specialties. It's called the USMLE steps. Yeah, step one, two, and three. Yeah. And so for like orthopedic surgery, you need a much higher score than psychiatry, which I feel like are the two extremes that I usually think of. Ortho and plastics are like the high ones, and like psychiatry, family medicine, and pediatrics or on the lower end, and like a lot of stuff kind of falls in the middle. Yeah. And the better you do on your exams and the grades you get, the more competitive program you're going to be able to get into. Luckily, pathology is on the slightly less competitive side. You still need to have solid grades and get good scores and have good rec letters, but you don't need to be multiple standard Ds above the average Yes. in order to get into the top program of your choice, like Nicole and I got into. Yeah. Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to mention about med school, and this was just because it was a question that a friend asked me recently, was what's the difference between an MD and a DO? Oh, okay. Um, and an MD is a doctor of medicine, and the DO is a doctor of osteopathy. And about 25% of medical grads each year are DOs, um, and that number is increasing. So this friend asked me what the difference is between the two, and in the case of forensic pathology, does one matter more than the other? So historically, DOs are touted for having more holistic methods in treatment. So they have this thing called osteopathic manipulative treatment, and this is a set of hands-on techniques that are used to diagnose, treat, and prevent illness or injury. So students at DO school spend about 200 more hours training on the musculoskeletal system in the curriculum than MDs. Okay. So essentially, if you want to become a primary care physician, this is where you might consider doing a DO over an MD. So if you're going into forensic pathology, it's probably better for you to aim for an MD school, although there are plenty of DOs in forensic pathology. So if you aren't sure, then and you go to a DO school, you can still go into forensic pathology, no problem. According to some 2018 numbers, 57% of DOs practice primary care versus 32% of MDs. So, like, DO is a very primary care funnel-heavy medical type of education. Yes. Yes. Um, I guess the other thing is, with the match, it's residency application is also called the match. Once you submit your application, it kind of goes into this black box and it's this algorithm of you rank the schools, the schools rank you, and ERAS magic happens, and it comes out with the match list, which match week, which is like the third week in March. Mm-hmm. Our year, it was St. Patrick's Day was match day, which oh, was crazy. dangerous, but great. Um Especially when you're in Vermont and the colors are green anyway. <laughs> um, so on Monday of match week, you find out if you've matched. Yes. And I was skiing with a friend and we went in. You find out on the East Coast at noon, I guess out here at 9 a.m. And we went into the lodge at noon. We ordered a beer and we opened our email at the same time. We found that we matched and we drank our beers and it was great. But if you don't match, you have to do this thing that they've changed the name for, but it was informally called the scramble which is where you like very quickly last minute try to apply to programs that have spots left yes and fit yourself into a program that might be the specialty you want if there are no spots left in the specialty you want you might apply to an intern year or a transitional year or apply to a different program yeah there's a lot of options um but it's stressful to say the least yes and now that process is called the soap 
or a supplemental offer and acceptance program. It's what it was called, but we still called it the scramble. <laughs> oh, we still called it the scramble, yeah. but the official name is still. Yes. <laughs> um, and then for us, well, Friday, you find out the results of the match. So starting at on the East Coast at noon, out here, 9 a.m., the medical schools are allowed to start handing you your letters that told you where you're going to match. Yes. And at 1 p.m. or out here, 10 a.m., you'll get an email with those results. So every school does it differently. I'm just going to, I know that your school probably does it in a much more sensible way, but ours, everybody meets in one of the main atriums and there's a big stage and they have this kind of like mini show thing for Teresa's Back to the Future. I don't really know why. And they start with, they have everybody's name or they have a bunch of letters that have the things on it and they call your name. And you don't have to, but most people go on to stage with their letters and open it and read it in front of everybody live. So they don't know where they're going to go and they open it and they read this letter in front of everybody. Now, which some people are like you, they're like absolutely not. And they don't have to. So they can take their letter and go off to the side and open right, it up later right. and then come onto stage if they want to. Yeah. Or if they don't want to, they don't have to. Yeah. But it's kind of peer pressure for us to go and right. read it on stage in front of everybody. And that's where you either cheer or inevitably there's for us, there's that one person that just like reads it and you can tell they're trying to not cry. And then they get off stage and they run away. I mean, I pretty much knew I was getting into UCSF because... So programs aren't allowed to ask you where you've ranked them. But they can tell you where they've ranked you. That's allowed. So, like, I was told that I was ranked to match. Which means that, like, I was in a position that if I ranked them first, I was going to be matched at UCSF. So I knew that coming in. So I knew that I had ranked UCSF number one, and I was told that, so I was relatively confident what was going to happen. <laughs> Not everybody has that, so for a lot of people, they come in with just like, you know, it's it's very stressful. I know that we did, like, our whole class did this big brunch beforehand, and we were across the street at um, one of my friends' house that was very close, and we had a few... Uh, Irish drinks before coming over on St. Patrick's Day <laughs> to reveal where we were going. Yeah, back when I was in med school, UCSF did a, it was brunch, I think, and they had the envelopes on the table, oh, so okay. whenever you sat, then we would open them all at the same time, okay. although I did not attend the event. So you found out at 1? So I found or out. Or at, for you? Yeah, whenever it was available online. And I did something called the couples match, because at the time yeah. I was with my ex, who was going into internal medicine. And we we ranked the same program first, and it was like the best mutual match, match. Mutual match where we would both end up in the same location. But then after that, we matched at places where it would be the best for us individually, even though they, we weren't in the same city, although yes. we were close. So we ended up not going to our first choice. Um, we went to separate institutions. But you went to the program that you would have rather been at. Yes. Yes. So the, it's an interesting thing that the match allows for that. Yeah. If you have a partner, you can do ranked lists together, essentially. Yeah. And so, like, those couples for us went up together in red. Oh. And usually when somebody was sad about something, it yeah. was because of a couples match. Because, like, even if, like, they were both, like, really strong candidates, like, usually... I mean, even just like when you interview or something, one might bring the other one down. So unless you have a power couple, which we, I think we only had one like power, power couple yeah. who both ended up at like the top places in their respective programs. Right. But like most people, like one of the two brought the other one down, which sounds kind of bad, but it's not meant to be that way. Yeah. Like, and it's, yeah, it's what you, the sacrifice you make if you're in love. Yeah. <laughs> the sacrifice you make for love. Yep. Um, but overall, the yeah. application process for residency, it's really similar to the med school one, except for the timeline, like you find out all at the same yeah. time, which I kind of like more. The other thing that's really nice about it, which we didn't have for fellowship, which we'll go into in a little bit, is you get a chance to see everywhere you want to see before you have to make a decision. Yes. So, you know, I got a chance to interview at all the places I wanted to before I had to make my list. Yes. So it wasn't like... I interviewed here, I got an offer, and I have to accept it before I can even interview with this other program. Right. Which is an issue we're going to with forensic pathology applications. Yeah. So you made it into residency. Woo! Yay. So now you're a pathology resident. That's where we are. And you're a doctor. Yes. Oh, my God. And People are calling you doctor so-and-so. Oh, creepy. Um, and then instead of hemorrhaging money, you are actually making some money. But you're still hemorrhaging all the 
student loans, debts, money. Yes. 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 So overall, still at a net negative in terms of money. Yes. But now... It's less of a net loss. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Less of a massive exsanguination, more of a gentle trickle. Yes. (laughs) (sighs) I want my money back. Never happening. Okay. No. Um, so, so what is pathology residency? Nicole? Oh, okay. So the standard pathology residency training in the U.S. is four years long and involves the two big branches of pathology, which are clinical pathology, colloquially called CP. Or lab medicine. Or lab medicine and anatomic pathology, also known as AP. So we'll probably say APCP from now on. AP anatomic CP clinical. Yes. And uh, that's the general structure for most programs. Some of the larger programs have solo tracks. So you can do CP only, which is three years, and then AP only, which is three years. Or you can do combinations. So there's something called AP and NP. So that's anatomic pathology and neuropathology. So neuropathology is a subspecialty. And um, usually a fellowship. And usually a fellowship. So this combines the residency portion of AP and the fellowship of NP together into four years. So it shaves off a, a year. And a lot of the combined programs, you end up doing a little bit more AP than CP. Yep. But then at bigger programs like at UCSF, you essentially are cut right down the middle. So you do 12, 24 months of AP, 24 months of CP, a little bit of wiggle room with electives in there. But essentially you're set up for half and half time. Versus at most programs, you do a little bit more AP than CP, which to me makes more sense overall, but. Yes, and at most programs, the two are integrated. Yes. At UCSF, and I think some of the other programs, they are, they're still separate. Separate departments, yeah. And then, so you'll do like a whole year of AP, a whole year of CP. First, like a month of, two months of AP, a month of CP, two months of AP, a month of CP, which seems like a better balance Balance, that you have, like instead of 12 months of go, 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 and 12 months of like, it's sine wave. It's a nice sine wave. <laughs> so on the clinical pathology, CP, lab medicine side of things, essentially you're learning to direct and supervise laboratories where the day-to-day work itself is performed by technologists and technicians. And this covers a ri- wide range of subspecialties. So this includes chemistry. So these are all of the various lab tests we perform on blood and body fluids, and also includes things like toxicology, which is super important to forensic pathology. Yes. Um, and then there's hematology, which is lab tests that are specifically looking at like various types of your blood cells. Yes. <laughs> uh, then there's blood banking or transfusion medicine, and this is blood typing and matching to ensure that blood transfusions occur safely. Uh, microbiology, which are all the tests that are used to identify organisms and determine which antibiotics are the most appropriate to use. And then in some programs, and this is kind of goes into AP also, is molecular genetics. So these are various tests that look at inherited diseases. Um, so things like prenatal screening, they can predict prognosis for different diseases, like the outcomes of certain types of cancer, and then determine whether certain treatments will work. So if you have certain mutations, you can be treated with certain drugs. So all of those tests kind of go through the lab. And some of that stuff is AP, but some of it is also CP. And of those things, the things that really matter to forensic pathologists are one, you need to do everything about medicine to figure out what's happening in your life so you know how they die. Yeah, because so anything the, can kill you. Literally. <laughs> so like all of the results of lab tests, you're sending postmortem specimens. So you need to know what you're running on them. Yep. You need to know like the vitreous, the eye fluid is, can give you this kind of results versus other things can give you different kind of results. But toxicology is really, really important. Yes. I mean, everything is important to the same extent that medicine is important in general, but toxicology is what kills a lot of people, <laughs> a.k.a. drugs, yeah. um, and mass spec is going to give you a lot of the answers. So toxicology is, of these, I would say, the if I had to pick one, yes. it would be toxicology. But they're all important in yeah. that they all can kill you. Yes. But. Yeah. And understanding how to interpret antimortem tests can also be helpful when you're looking at yes. what might have contributed to somebody's exactly. death. Exactly. Yeah. So then on the anatomic pathology side, anatomic refers to the structure of tissues and organs. So 
basically the job of the anatomic pathologist is to recognize and diagnose abnormal or diseased anatomy from tissue specimens. Yes. So versus like the fluid that gets sent to a lab, these are like hunks of tissue. <laughs> um, so pathologists use the gross or the macroscopic uh, appearance and the microscopic, so under the microscope, appearance of diseased tissue <laughs> to render diagnoses. And there are three basic areas within anatomic pathology. The biggest is surgical pathology. So that's like cancer pathology. A surgeon takes something out, they yep. give it to us, and we take those organs and we say, this is what kind of disease you have. Did you get it all? Did you not? Yeah. And kind of staging and grading it. So yep. Yep. kind of that. And then there's uh, cytology or cytopathology, and it's very similar to surgical pathology, but diagnoses are made by pathologists looking at like individual cells essentially under a glass slide. And so needle biopsies, like yes. taking a needle, passing it in and out, getting singles or groups of cells. Yeah, and this is the branch of pathology that does the most direct patient interaction. Yes. So they are actually performing these fine needle biopsies. They have to touch themselves. people. Yes. It's weird. Yes. Uh, and then the last big branch of anatomic pathology is autopsy pathology, which includes forensics. And this is the surgical examination performed on a dead body. So, you know, we've discussed autopsy in detail in many episodes, but essentially there are two types of autopsies that we learn when we're going through residency. Um, there's the autopsy. There's the hospital or medical autopsy. And this is performed at the request of the patient's physicians to clarify the cause of death or to shed light on the response to treatment or the cause of some particularly puzzling aspect of disease. And then forensic or medical legal autopsy. And this is ordered by legal authorities to determine the cause and manner of death. So here at UCSF, um, we are not doing autopsies every day, contrary to popular belief. We have uh, one month of autopsy at Parnassus, which is one of our main campuses, and this is hospital autopsy. So we spend a whole month doing those. Whatever comes in, we do it. And they come from all the UCSF hospitals. They all get done. So if somebody dies at a different UCSF hospital, they still go to Parnassus to have the autopsy done. Yes. And then we do one month of forensics at the medical examiner's office in San Francisco. And then when we're on rotation at the VA and the general hospital, we also do random autopsies that come in. We don't get that many at those locations. And they get rotated between whatever residents are there at the time. Yes. So if you happen to be there in the month where there's no autopsies, you do none. Yeah. If you happen to get 10 autopsies, you're each doing three plus autopsies. Yep. So it happens sometimes, but... Yeah, and then we have a couple months of elective time every year, so you can choose to do more autopsy or forensics time during your elective time, which Jordan and I have both done. And during residency, the American Board of Pathology used to require all residents to do 50 autopsies, but just this year they decreased that requirement to 30, which has caused a bit of controversy in the field. A lot of that was around COVID times, which kind of also threw another wrench into things. Yeah. And so Nicole briefly mentioned that you can do this APNP neuropathology. And so what does that neuropathology fellowship entail? Because this people often do APNP and then go into forensics. And so neuropathology is brains, brains, and more brains. Most of neuropathology fellowship focuses on brain tumors because most neuropathology fellowships are at an academic institution who cares about, doesn't, not like they only care about them, but they, they exist to do a lot of brain surgeries. But they also do muscle and nerve biopsies, and they also do neurodegenerative diseases. So you do learn a lot in this two-year-long fellowship that doesn't just cover brain tumors, but a lot of it is not necessarily forensics-focused, which you could argue that neurodegenerative diseases might be more important you still might see a brain tumor, but the need to diagnose the subtype of brain tumor when they died from a brain tumor is slightly less important than some of the other bigger, broader things. Yeah, um, definitely more important to determine the type of brain tumor and somebody you're planning on treating so exactly. you can choose the right treatment. <laughs> but there is a lot that there's a lot of causes and manner of death that are dependent on something in the brain mm -hmm. that a lot of forensic pathologists don't necessarily have the subspecialty training for so they'll hire a forensic neuropathologist who's trained in this so like we'll go into it a little bit later but you can do a fellowship after forensics fellowship focusing on neuropathology in the forensic sense to get a little bit more on that yeah but it's pretty com not pretty common but it's not uncommon for people to do apnp 
and then do the forensics fellowship after that. Yeah. And there are other subspecialties that people who go into forensics also do. Like I've met quite a few people who do forensic pathology and pediatric pathology just because you don't do a lot of pediatric autopsies when you're in residency or forensics fellowship. And so that's kind of a niche specialty area because kids are not many adults, contrary to popular belief. They are subadults. They are subadults, but not many adults. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And then the last thing I wanted to mention about residency training is that at the end of it all, you get to take more very expensive tests. Which for us, luckily the program pays for. Uh, Yes. We have a, a fund that helps pay for them. Although if you deplete your fund buying books and stuff throughout the year. So at the end of residency to become board certified, um, you have to take tests through the American board of pathology. So if you go through combined train APCP training, like most people do, you have to take both anatomic and clinical pathology boards and combined it costs $2,600. If you do them separately, they're each $2,100. So stupid. So fun. But once you do that, you're official. You are. Yeah. And then, well, I guess before that, Forensics Fellowship. When you apply to Forensics Fellowship, this actually starts halfway through your second year. Well, for us, second year of residency. If you're doing a three-year-long residency, you go halfway through your first year of residency, (laughs) which is even crazier. Yeah. So we started applying for Forensics Fellowship a little over a year and a half into residency. It was April of our second year. And in fact, we were late. March, (laughs) April. And we were late. So applying for fellowship is kind of more like applying to a quote-unquote real job in that you send out separate applications. It's not a common application anymore. You have to apply to each program separately. You send out your CV. You send your rec letters. It's kind of a similar overall type of thing, but you get an interview offer and then you go out and you interview and then they can at any point send you an offer for a job. Yep. And they can say, you need to tell me now, but you might still have another three interviews lined up that, you know, you have to take that job or not. And like you've signed a thing that said you're going to go there. So you can't like then go interview somewhere else and take that job and drop this job because you signed a contract for it. Or if you're a good person, you wouldn't. So it's... We said before how one of the nice things about this common application for residency is that you get a chance to see everywhere before you have to apply. And there's a specific timeline. And there's a specific timeline that you know about. Versus this, like when we started to apply, one of the programs had already filled all four of their spots before we even had a chance to reach out and say, hi, I'm interested. And they were gone. Yeah. And it's just not very well communicated and very frustrating And this is not a forensic pathology specific thing. This is a pathology as a medical specialty does not do a match. Most other specialties in medicine do a match. Some do. I wouldn't say most. A lot do. Internal medicine does. But I feel like internal medicine is just such a big one that it covers a lot. But a lot of other ones don't necessarily do a match. So it's, it's annoying. It's very annoying. I guess one thing is it doesn't cost money to apply to fellowship. Except for the fact that you have to, like, fly an interview. Which, not anymore, COVID. <laughs> That's true. Um, but, you know, I didn't have to pay to apply to the places that I applied to for fellowship. I yes. only had to pay for my flight to get out to Seattle. And I stayed with a friend. And I took public transport. Yep. So that so part very was nice. yeah. cheap, quote unquote. I am very glad that we are going to the fellowship that we're going to. But it was a little bit frustrating not having this set process and being able to see everything and being able to decide based on the whole picture because I was this was the first place I interviewed and I got an offer and it was like well I'm not gonna be able to get an interview anywhere else which is like a good problem to have don't get me wrong I'm very excited but at the same time it's kind of like a weird system and that you're like well I'm going here now yeah (laughs) because I am excited about it and I am super pumped but like it's still weird that I didn't apply nurse and the other thing that's crazy is we took this job in April of 2018 to start in July of 2021. That's insane. Indeed. And like my friend that I was staying with when I was there in April, she was like, April, May, whenever it was, she was like, oh, so are you going to start in like a couple months? And I was like, a couple months in 2021. And her mouth literally dropped open (laughs) because it was like two plus years from now. It's kind of crazy. Um, I mean, it's nice to have your life planned out, but at the same time, it's crazy that you're like planning so far ahead in your life. I know. I'm so anxious now because 
I don't know what's going to happen at After the end. After fellowship, yeah. yeah. <gasps> when normally I've had my life planned out for so long. I know. Point. I know. So fellowship. Now we're into fellowship. What are we going to do next year? Guys, so, after only like an hour, we're into fellowship. <laughs> it's our final. It'll pass in a blink of an eye, guys. It won't. But it's fun along the way. Yeah. Um, so in fellowship, the main goal of Forensics Fellowship is to perform 200 to 250 autopsies semi-independently. So externals don't count. So you need to cut into a body. You need to do histology. You need to look under the microscope on all of these. You need to write the report on all of these. So the point is to take the body and the scene, which hopefully you'll have pictures or that kind of thing, and determine the cause, manner, mechanism of death for these bodies. Be comfortable with the workflow from cutting the case into looking under the microscope to writing the report. Just getting comfortable with that whole workflow. And also at the same time, knowing how scene investigations work. Because with medical examiners, you need to be able to run a scene investigation. You also need to know how to um, convey the information that you've collected. So you need to know how to present in court. You might not present in court your first year Mm -hmm. because the judicial system takes a while. But it, you know, you need to learn how to do that because eventually you're going to have to do that. Yeah. Um, You need to learn how to communicate with grieving families. Yes. You also need to make sure you get certain types of cases. Mm. So you need so many homicides. You need so many pediatric cases. There's certain check boxes that you need that I'm not going to go into detail on, but you kind of need to hit all the broad categories of cases so you're comfortable. And then at the same time, you're building this you know network of people for like when you have a question in the future, who could you go to for help? Yeah. And it's a very small community. It is a very small like community. Like relatively. Yes. As we've mentioned before. We need 1,500 people in the field to cover the U.S., and there are only 500-ish yes. active forensic pathologists. I want more friends. Yep, yep. And then, just like the end of residency, at the end of fellowship, you get to take more tests. Woohoo! So there's a forensic pathology board exam yep. that is similarly long and painful. <laughs> and expensive. Also yes. $2,100. Oh, I don't think we mentioned this in the first one, but AP and CP are each individually eight-hour-long tests. Ah. The forensics board is also an eight-hour-long test. So this is literally an entire day of sitting in front of a computer, in front of a computer or in front of a microscope answering questions about pathology, which is just exhausting. Yep. So, And it's not like, it might be now with COVID, but it's not like sitting in the comfort of your own home for all of pathology boards. It's either in Tampa or... Arizona, right? Yes, I believe so. Tampa, and at least I know. For t- sure. Tampa for sure. Yeah. And then they also had a site in Arizona, and I'm not sure where forensics was. Slash, I think now it's just going to be at home because of COVID. But. And then, as Nicole mentioned, there are some super fellowships yeah. <laughs> where you can do neuropathology, pediatrics, cardiac pathology. So kind of focusing in some of the fields that are extra specialty forensic pathology that you can focus more on and those do not have board exams at the end of those those are just kind of like a specialization area but i guess neuropathology does but like it's neuropathology for forensics isn't like a neuropathology fellowship yes so that's so you would, yeah. yeah if you go through it at a forensics program you would you not would be not take quali- the neuropathology boards. yes you yes. would not be eligible but you could do a whole separate fellowship if you wanted and then take ew the board. yeah okay ew. you mean you don't want to be in training for longer brains are so squishy <laughs> That's why you fix them. Formalin fixes everything. everything. You know what also fixes everything? No. Not social media. <laughs> it breaks everything more. So. No, I was going to ask you some questions. Oh, questions. Okay, I like questions. Okay. I think maybe. We'll see. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Nicole. I have a sense of smell and or I'm prone to fainting. Can I still be a forensic pathologist? So... I'm going to take both of those simply. So I think the sense <laughs> of smell thing is funny because when, you, when you're doing an autopsy... One, you should always be wearing an N95 in there. And not that it keeps out all smells, but at least keeps out some smells. And the reason I kind of laugh is because at some point this month, I walked into the autopsy suite, like autopsies were going on, and I was just like, I can smell more than I think I can. I realized I walked in there without my N95 on, and I quickly took three steps backwards (laughs) and put it back on. But it was definitely one of those, like, why am I smelling so much? Oh, that's why. And, like, it doesn't keep out everything. And decomps do smell. But if you're passionate enough about it you can kind of get over that yeah and everybody has that thing that gets them like karen um ziegler who graduated ucsf 
pathology residency a couple years ago, just did her forensics fellowship in New Mexico this past year. She said that floaters, which are bodies found in the water, still get her. For me, there was this one point that somebody was pulling out an endotracheal tube and this big like goober that was attached to it like flopped out of the mouth and over onto the face. And for some reason that just got me. <laughs> and I just like had to turn around and I like gagged a little bit. Yeah. And it was like of all the things, it was just like a thing of mucus attached to the endotracheal tube that just like flopped out of the mouth and I just it couldn't do it. It was but it was weird. It wasn't like and normally eyes get me. Eyes have always been a even though I can like touch my eyes and stuff like eye injuries freak me out. Yeah. Like everybody's gonna have their thing. But what about you? How do you feel about that? No, I agree. A lot of the people in the field have said, Oh, I don't smell and I'm like, Oh, I definitely I definitely can smell. smell things. But there are ways to work around it and yeah, if you're passionate you're gonna keep going. But like I've heard, you know, they, they hang deodorizers around, there's good ventilation in yeah. the buildings, you're wearing the PPE. I've heard some people put like tea bags inside of their masks they, also. They put rub, yeah, they to rub. help with the smell. So there are ways around it. The other thing is if you can still smell it means you probably don't have COVID. Yes. So that's good. Winner winner chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have fainted before mm. it's usually when it's really hot and i am chronically underhydrated because i hate drinking water just hate drink i can vouch so for that. for me it's more about remembering to drink water and staying hydrated we're gonna get the carbonated water thing in our office for next year yes so it'll be please. fine yeah during my forensics rotation it was yeah <laughs> the first day i almost passed out and i was like oh no our supervisor is gonna think so little of me because i come in i'm so enthusiastic i want to go into forensics and then i have to step out of the room to sit <laughs> down because i'm about to pass out oh, no. granted it was the hottest heat wave of the year yeah and I, you know, I hadn't had enough water. So I started drinking coconut water every morning before going into the autopsy suite. And it helps. And it was not a problem anymore. Great. Yes. I'll just buy you a case of coconut water before we start next year. Thanks. Yeah. You're welcome. And there are definitely cases that get to me. I can't think of particular instances, but I like gobs of hair mm. always kind of. Yeah. Or like a scalp come yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. So there People things. have their things and like people are always going to have their things. And it's fine. You just work. Through it around. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Nicole. Uh, but I like talking to people. Why would I go into forensic pathology where I'm just going to be around dead people all day? I mean, I talk to my body all day. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, I was doing too good opportunity to pass it. So one of the things that I love about forensics is like in medicine, you talk to patients. You talk to other doctors. But in forensics, you talk to other forensic pathologists at morning meeting. We have a discussion with the investigators where you're walk, talking through different scenarios. You talk to other medical examiners about cases you have. You're talking to the techs all day because you're working very closely with this other person that you're, you know, is helping you with the autopsy. You're talking with family. You're talking with cops. You're talking with lawyers. You're presenting in court. So you're actually doing a lot of communicating and arguably more than a surgical pathologist who's writing a report and maybe talking to a doctor on the phone. You're doing a lot more direct communication with people. So you do get plenty of talking. You will get that bug out of your system. Last question. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Nicole. So I went through medical school and I got all of this debt. Why should I go into forensic pathology if the pay is so bad compared to other specialties? So yes, the pay isn't great, but there, at least right now there's the public service loan forgiveness program. And if you are in most medical examiner systems are through public health departments or through the state, and they count as giving back towards this. And most residency programs are part of public institutions. So you have four years of residency. And then if you can work in a medical examiner for six more years and paying off the minimum amount, all of your debt will be waived. And besides that, it's one of those things that, I don't know, I have a lot of debt. I know I'm going to have a lot of debt, but it's still something that I love. And... I don't feel like I need a ton of money to survive and be a normal human. I don't need or want that do lavish doctor <laughs> lifestyle. <Labyrinth>. So, <laughs> exactly. G6s. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, it's to each his own. If what you're going for in becoming a doctor is to have lots of money, this might not be the right field for you. But it depends on your motivations and why you're going into the field. And for me, one of my motivations is not to have a lot of money. And public service loan forgiveness isn't half bad. Yeah. Yeah, my bottom line was, if money is why you're going into medicine, you should think again. Yeah. We've talked about this, and it's a long process, and we have kind of been 
rather cheery throughout, but medicine is tough. Like yeah. there are definitely times in medical school where you think about quitting. Oh, and in yeah. residency, there are times when you think about quitting. Every step of the way is another day where you think about quitting. Is this worth it? Yes. And if you don't love it, then the answer might be no. And then you've gone through all this hard work for nothing. And that's fine. If it's not what you want to do, that's fine. Yes. But do it because you love it. Yes. Not because of the money. Yes. And you know what else everybody loves? What's that? Social meets. Social meets. (laughs) So if you liked this and any of our other episodes, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. It's how we get boosted up on the various podcasting platforms and other people learn about us. You can visit our website at deadmendotailpodcast.com where we link to all of our sources in our episode guide. On Twitter, we're at deadmendo. On Insta, we're at the Dead Tale Tales. And our Facebook page is Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. And, so, and as always, you can send us an email through the website or directly to the Tales at gmail.com. And that's if you have questions, comments, concerns, just want to say hi. We love saying hi. Yep, yep. And then our music is Introducing the Pre-Roll by Lee Rosevear, who you can find on SoundCloud. We hope you guys learned something about, you know, what we've gone through the past 12, 16 plus years. Our entire lives. Entire lives. (laughs) Yeah. And seriously, if you have any other questions about it, don't hesitate to send us an email. Yeah. Totally. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.